A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us. I'm Anoush Shekelian, Britain editor of the New Statesman and host of this podcast. And with me in the studio is Freddie Hayward, our political correspondent. Thanks so much to everyone who sent questions in this week. We really do read them all, so keep them coming. You could submit them to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us or leave us a comment on YouTube. Or if you're listening on Spotify, you can now scroll down and leave a reply. Freddie, you've got our first question this week. What is it? Yeah, it's a question from Tom Bailey who says, I see Starmer is often criticised as generating none of the excitement of Blair in 97, but isn't the legacy of Blair at least in part to blame for the scepticism of Starmer? I like this question and I just want to, yeah, I want to address the first part of it first, generating none of the excitement of Blair in 97. Now, I went to go and dig around in the New Statesman's mm-hmm. archive to work out what the feeling was because, you know, I mean, you and I were different ages, but we weren't really around for the excitement no. before, before Blair as political journalists, at least. And it's interesting because there's a lot of articles in 96 and early sort of January 97, which make many of the same criticisms that Keir Starmer is receiving today. So Steve Richards, our former political editor, wrote a column in January 97 saying that the party was, you know, centralising power away from the membership, which is a criticism of Starmer, at least from the left at the moment. And he he suggested that the Labour leadership should be careful making these kind of party constitutional reforms because the membership sometimes knows best. So you hear that criticism now. (laughs) Then you've got a leader, which is sort of the editorial of the magazine, which suggests that there needs to be further depth to Labour's policy. This is from 96, July 96, you know, nearly a year before that election. And it says that, it, it, you know, it should be yeah, adding more weight to their policy offer in their manifesto. That's something that Starmer hears a lot of today as well. And then from January 97, there's a piece by Charles Clark, who actually went on to go and serve in the new Labour government, but he'd been chief of staff for Neil Kinnock. And he was saying, you know, opinion polls aren't everything. The Labour Party now is being accused of shaping its policy based on public opinion. And he's also said that Labour is vulnerable to the charge that Labour has no policies and its policies are the same as the Tories. And that's a danger for them. That's something that Starmer's been accused of. And also that they need to communicate to voters that Labour will bring about a constructive change in society. That's something that comes up a lot now as well. You know, Mm. does Labour in its current form represent any change from the current state of things? I'd query, and obviously I'll defer to journalists and politicos who were around in 96 and 97 covering this stuff, but I'd query this idea that there was 
this huge swell of excitement the year before the 97 yeah. election. It's often retrospective, isn't it? Yeah. I think if Keir Starmer wins the next election, he'll be hailed as a revolutionary campaigner who's, you know, a prophet of winning elections, just as Blair's been since then. It's fascinating that we've got such a, a small data set of historical comparisons that we often, as politicos and journos, we, you know, look back and we basically go, OK, is he Blair? Is he yeah. Wilson? Yeah. Is he Attlee? Um, and that's a, a data set of three. So it's not that illuminating and it's not that long. No. And we're constantly looking for these historical parallels, basically to explain the present, which can be helpful, but can also be very restrictive. And then on Blair as well, I mean, it's fascinating that those criticisms are so similar. Mm, yeah. The only thing I would say is I don't think that invalidates them. In many ways, Blair was or did stick to the conservative consensus. He said that you wouldn't spend more than the Tories would in the first two years. He was adamant that he didn't want to break up the Thatcherite economic consensus. He saw himself, I think, in many ways as the the executor of Thatcher's will, and he stuck to her wishes quite a lot. So I don't think he did orchestrate the change, and I think, if anything, we should take those criticisms of Starmer more seriously because they replied to Tony Blair and they came true. Yeah, well, that's the second part of the question, isn't it? Isn't the legacy of Blair in part to blame for the scepticism of Starmer? Maybe not the scepticism, but the challenge that Starmer faces now. Yeah. You know, this idea that politics, you know, is incredibly narrow now, like you say, part of the part of that is Tony Blair's part in the Thatcherite consensus, which means that people, you know, feel that then won't necessarily be a particular change, whoever they vote for, which is something that you hear a lot when you speak mm -hmm. to voters now. Apathy was a big part of that 97 election win. OK, it was a big Labour landslide, but there are a lot of Conservative voters who didn't vote. And yeah. again, Ben Walker, our polling person, says that might happen this time round. I've spoken to a lot of lifelong Conservative voters in the run-up to various elections and by-elections who have said that they just can't bring themselves to vote at all. Yeah. And then also you've got this idea of accepting the Tories' spending framework, which is what Tony Blair did, mm. which is now the modus operandi for Starmer and Rachel Reeves. And it means that it does detract from any idea of an alternative policy offer, really. We've been speaking time and again. I think each week we come back into the studio and talk about another policy that they've ditched or rode yeah. back on or watered down. Yeah. These articles can prove different things to you. They can prove that's what Labour needs to do to win, because they did win in the election following the year of these pieces that I've dug out. But they might also suggest that this form of politics has led to a kind of lack of enthusiasm for Labour over the years since. The other thing that's really interesting is what Steve Richards said about the membership. Mm. And I think one of the key reasons that Starm has been able to purge the left from the party in the past two years so successfully is that he had the precedent of Blair. Mm. He could often say, this is what Blair did, this is what New Labour did, and it was successful because they went on to win. So in, in many ways, Tony Blair acts as a, a as cover or a shield for Keir Starmer to do these unpopular things among, in his party mm. because he can say, well, this is how you win. But, it, I mean, I said earlier that it was just the journalists and politicos who have this small data set of historical comparisons, but it also seems that Labour are the same. Many people are just obsessed with within the party obsessed with just looking back to 97 and trying to replicate it, understandably. But the present is obviously very different to the past. And I do think there has been a shift away from some of the economic consensus in the past three decades or so. I thought it was remarkable witnessing Keir Starmer, I think, move towards the 2019 platform that Boris Johnson has tried to stand on and did very successfully on. We had those conversations about Keir the Conservative, him adopting the language of Brexit. 
I thought it was going remarkably well in that regard. And then we have this obsession with fiscal stringency, which is a throwback to the austerity years and the way that they speak about it. I mean, obviously, we have a huge question mark of whether they'll actually stick with that when they get into office. That's the big question about Labour at the moment. Will they be more radical when they get in than they promise now? But yeah, that's the the concern. I think that's the biggest worry. And if that is the lesson they take from 97, I don't think they will be as radical in power as they perhaps ought to be. After the break, Freddie has another question for us. Give us a hint of what's coming, Freddie. It's sort of related to what we were just talking about, trying to get more people out to vote. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back after this. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Freddie, what's our next question? Yes, we've got a question from Ben who says, in order to combat low turnout and voter apathy, should we incentivise voters with, for instance, a £10 food and drink voucher or a meal deal, you could say, or make it compulsory, as in some countries, to vote or by some other means? What do we think, Anoush? I love this idea. (laughs) Eat out to turn out. Yeah. I I don't think meal deals are quite £10 yet, by the way. Yeah, they are getting that. They've burst the £3 barrier. Which was a big moment in economic history. Yeah, I did actually Um, write a piece about that. Good, as we all should have. (laughs) But yeah, I think it's it's a really interesting question, and I've done a little bit of research again, if you'll bear with me, before, before this podcast, when we saw Ben's question. This has been dry in various ways. So in a city of London borough election back in 2012, they put voters into a lottery, you know, with the chance of winning 10 grand. And actually, that did improve turnout. And then there's another example of this academic Donald P. Green in New York, who in 2005 to 6 and 2016 to 18 held festivals in New York near neighbourhood polling sites with the option of people to have food at them for free. And that actually did increase turnout by two percentage points and even higher in presidential elections. But the important thing that he felt was that it actually showed that turnout held up in subsequent elections mm-hmm. without the festivals. I mean, voting is a habit that you form. So once you've voted, you're far more likely to vote again. And we actually saw that in the Brexit referendum, which had a high turnout, and yep. then people continued to turn out for elections after that. It's not sort of an idea that's taken on around the world, I guess, because it would be so expensive and perhaps open for exploitation. But yeah, I mean, as a method of trying to get people to vote, it's perhaps less draconian than mandatory voting, which... Yeah. Which is the other option. Yeah. So Australia has compulsory voting and they've got a $20 fine there if you don't vote, which is about £11, I think, today. And that's 
very successful though. They've got average turnouts of around 90%. It dipped, I think, last year to around 91, 92 in the House of Representatives election. But that's remarkable if you look at mm-hmm. UK general elections, you know, it's often around 60, 65%. It started to dip after 92, I think, and then from 97 onwards. We've seen it, it tick back up a little bit in the past three or four elections, but it went back down 2019. So it's very successful in Australia. You can go to court, I think. They do increase the fine if you don't pay it. So it is punitive. I guess the question therefore is whether you want to have a system which basically the state's in effect forcing people to participate in the democratic process or you want to go down the incentivization route and it's slightly less draconian as you say Mm. i do feel as if it's important to create those habits for people to vote and it's obviously especially for younger people and certain demographics if they vote more politicians more likely to listen and we can't always just assume that people understand that they need to vote to be listened to. The reason that I feel slightly uncomfortable with it is that, well, maybe it's like a slightly romantic notion of democracy, but it should be something that you volunteer to participate in. Mm. And it's okay just to say, I'm not interested and I want to go home and not listen to all these cranks and vacuous politicians <laughs> shout at me. So that's the only thing that sort of holds me back. But I think when you do look at some of the international comparisons, it's remarkable how successful it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think I have some sympathy for your view there in terms of it being a process of voluntary participation. We were talking in the previous episode about voter turnout in 97 Mm. and in the potential next election that we're having soon. And actually, I I do think not voting is a message to governments in itself sometimes, particularly if it's, well, the Conservatives just didn't turn out, you know, in X seat or whatever. Mm. It can have an implication for which government gets in, but it can also sort of send a message during by-elections and local elections about how your usual base that you rely on a feeling about you Because a Conservative lifelong voter might not be persuaded by Labour, might not want to turn out for the Lib Dems, but really doesn't want to put an X in the box for a Conservative because they're so disillusioned with the way that they've been running the country. And that's a message in itself. Yeah, I guess the counter is that you can just spoil your ballot. You can spoil your ballot. And there's a limit to that argument because, of course, you do get demographics that turn out far less than others, which means that we do have an outsized influence on politics by older voters and younger voters. You know, they're not generally not turning out because they're so disgusted by our politicians. They're not turning out because they're not into the habit of voting and perhaps they, you know, haven't been shown how. And with the addition of voter ID, it has an extra bit of friction to the process as well. But I do think sort of giving out food and drink vouchers perhaps is the easy way out of actually proper civic education and engagement. And maybe there are other things as well. I was reading one report from an Australian institute last night and they were basically saying that if you move the day on which the election occurs, say you put it on a weekend, you can actually increase turnout by around six percentage points. That's interesting. I mean, historically, the UK election, general election has always been on a Thursday, but obviously people have work. If you have it on a Sunday, which many countries do, then people have the full day to go, get to the polling booth and cast their vote. I mean, what do you think about that, Anish? Are you a traditionalist? Do you want to keep on a Thursday? I don't know. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, we're usually working the weekend following an election yes, anyway, exactly. so there's no benefit for us. So there's no personal side to this. But Saturdays and Sundays are different religious days for different groups as yeah. well. You may not feel that you should go out and vote for certain Mm -hmm. cultural reasons. But also, you know, I do feel like the weekend should be pure and and free of politics. (laughs) (laughs) But if it would increase turnout by a significant extent, then perhaps it's something that that our politicians need to look at. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good question. And I did feel when I was reporting on voter ID that, you know, there are just sort of 
ways in which we do make it difficult for people to engage in, in the democratic process. And for some reason, we're making it even harder. It's a shame. Thanks to everyone who sent in questions. The link to reach us is in the show notes. This weekend, we're bringing you a very literary audio long read from the author Ali Smith, who writes about the unflinching existentialism of Simone de Beauvoir. That's publishing right here in the New Statesman podcast feed on Saturday morning. Remember to follow the New Statesman podcast on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this, why not leave us a nice review? Like our listener, Fair Player 2, who said the podcast is better than ever. Thanks so much for that, Fair Player 2. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleague, Freddie Haywood. We're produced by Chris Stone. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.